If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me once again to the book of Philippians and to chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We are going to continue in the sermon series that we began a number of weeks ago now, and it's entitled, Who Are We? And, And through this study, through the letter of Philippians, we've determined who we are, or at least who we are supposed to be. And we've been repeating it back to one another now for 10 weeks. Let's do it again. Here at Ivy Creek, we are a you all, gospel first, servant hearted family of believers who want our lives to count for the glory of God. That's who we are. It's who, it's who we're supposed to be and it's who we desire to be here at Ivy Creek. Now, as I studied and read and contemplated the passage that's before us this morning that we're going to look at, I actually thought about adding another word, but I knew it was going to mess you guys up if I did that. So I haven't added in there, but I believe that based upon what we're going to study and read today, we need to be also a satisfied group of believers. We need to be a satisfied, contented group of believers. Contented is another word. It's a synonym to the word satisfied. Those words Those words describe really a state of happiness. They describe a state of being at peace. Uh, And and the question that I'd just like for you to ask yourself today is, am I satisfied? Am I satisfied? That's a big question. doesn't take long to ask it, but it takes an awful lot of long time to, to try to answer it when we really think about it. Are you contented? I believe it's an incredibly important question. And if you're not sure about your answer to it, Well, I want you to know that the passage in front of us today will show us how a state of contentment and satisfaction is possible. Now, let me go right ahead and acknowledge that the biggest issue that that confronts our ability to experience contentment and satisfaction in our lives is our circumstances. We've discussed this in previous studies. In fact, last week we talked about that Paul when he commanded in Philippians 4, verse 4, that that the Philippian church rejoice always, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, Paul says. We talked about there that that true joy is a joy that we are to have always, even amidst our our rising and falling of the circumstances in which we find ourselves in life. And and what that means is that true joy is not determined by our ever-changing circumstances. Rather, it it, it comes from a deep and an abiding relationship with Jesus. And the same can actually be said of our satisfaction and our contentment. However, the reality is that just like our joy, our satisfaction is often eroded, if not completely destroyed, when our circumstances and our situation in life becomes distressed or disturbed. I like the illustration that I read from Warren Wiersbe. He, he helped put contentment and satisfaction into context for me. Uh, he described the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. Some of you probably looked, listened to this before. But a thermometer, he writes, doesn't change anything around it. It just registers the temperature. It's always going up and down. But a thermostat regulates the surroundings and it changes them when they need to be changed. Now, the reality is, is that a lot of folks are like thermometers. Their mood, their state of mind is greatly impacted and changed based upon what's going on 
around them. Listen, when things are going, when things are going well, when they've got plenty of money in the bank, when their health is good, when the sun is out, you'll find a smile on their face, you'll find a song on their lips. But when a rough patch comes, when the bills mount up and there's more bills than there are money to pay them, when sickness hits, when, when as we're about to experience in the next few months, when the days get shorter, and the days get wearier. But suddenly there's no longer a smile to be found. There's no longer a song to be sung. In other words, they're like thermometers. And their lives change with the changing of their circumstances. Others, though, are like thermostats. And what I mean by that is that instead of experiencing the spiritual highs and lows of, of the changing circumstances in which they live... These folks just seem to be able to go right on. In fact, they, they set about to affect change upon their circumstances by, by simply steadily serving the Lord and by doing His work. And for those people, the best way to describe them, I believe, is that they're steady. We might even say that they're satisfied. They're contented. It's not because they're ignorant of the circumstances surrounding them. It's not because they are complacent and just simply don't care about what's going on around them. It's not because they're unaffected by tough times. No, as Wearsby puts it, he says, contentment is not escape from the battle, but rather an abiding peace and confidence in the midst of the battle. I believe that those folks are steady. They are like thermostats they are satisfied and they are content because their confidence and their hope and their trust is in Christ, not in their circumstances. So based upon that explanation of things, let me ask you again, are you satisfied? Are you in a state of contentment? Are you more like a thermometer or more like a thermostat? I'm going to switch things up a little bit today. I'm going to give you my sermon in a sentence up front. That tends to mess people up whenever I do that. So consider yourself messed up right now. I'm, I'm trying to change your equilibrium today. So I'm going to give you my sermon in a sentence up front, but I want you to hang with me for the rest of it because I'm going to try to explain and flesh it out exactly what it means. My sermon in a sentence this morning is simply this. Joyful satisfaction necessitates learning a regardless contentment that is rooted in a Christ-centered confidence. I believe our passage today is going to really flesh that out for us, and I want us to hang together for a few moments this morning as we do that. Let's hear the word of the Lord, though. I'm going to begin reading there in Philippians 4, verse 10, where Paul writes this, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day and for this word. Now, I pray that you would just give us wisdom and understanding to be able to take this which you've given to us and apply it to our lives in a way that is appropriate 
and is good and that honors you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we're getting close to the end of the book of Philippians. And, and, and what that tells us is that Paul is kind of summing things up. And what we begin to know is that his heart, that we, we recognize that the book of Philippians is really a thank you note. It's an extended long thank you note in which he's writing to them, but he's letting these Philippian believers know about the intense joy that he experienced when, when Epaphroditus showed up. You remember him? He's the one who, who brought this, this love offering from the Philippian church to Paul who was there incarcerated in this Roman uh, prison cell waiting to be tried because he was preaching the gospel. And he had brought the, Epaphroditus had brought warm greetings from the Philippian church and Paul was ecstatic. He was certainly happy for this gift that had been brought to him, but he was also happy to see his old friend. And in fact, he, Paul provides some words of encouragement to the Philippian believers by acknowledging that their, their, his recognition of their care for him had flourished again. I, I would say that when Paul was there, when Epaphroditus showed up unexpectedly, it was like all the flowers just began to burst forth in spring. And it just brought great joy and a wind into his sails. And so his presence, Epaphroditus, his presence there with Paul, the gift that he brought him had really blessed Paul's heart. And he wanted the church in Philippi to know that. But then based upon what he wrote in the last part of verse 10, Paul also wanted them to know that he recognized that they had always cared for him. They had always loved him, even though they'd not sent him any kind of care package before now. Based upon what Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers, we know that the church in Philippi, as well as the other churches that were there in the region of Macedonia, were very, very poor. They, they really didn't have a lot of resources, and perhaps that explains why the Philippian believers had not sent a gift to Paul to help him before now. It is also possible that they didn't have a messenger that they could send for that, that length, roughly 800 miles, that they could send from, from Philippi to, to Rome. Maybe they didn't have someone there that would be able to do that. But what we know is, is that Paul lets them know, I'm not holding it against you that, that nothing has showed up for you before now. I'm just simply rejoicing, he says. What I don't want you to miss is that important prepositional phrase that we come to there again in verse 10. I remind you that theology often hangs on prepositions and prepositional phrases. And notice once again that Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Greatly there is an adverb that describes how much he rejoiced. In the Lord's the prepositional phrase I want to draw your attention to because it tells you the source of his joy. It's just like what we looked at last week when, when Paul told the, the church there to rejoice in the Lord always. He's saying, I practice what I preach. You, you rejoice in the Lord always because I rejoice in the Lord always, and I rejoice greatly, he says. And here we see that that nevertheless, even so, always kind of joy that we talked about last week is, is prevalent in Paul's life too. But even though Paul rejoiced in the Lord, make no mistake about it, he was excited to see Epaphroditus. That, that added to his joy. He was excited to receive the support that, they, that he brought to them. But I want you to know if Epaphroditus had never made it to Rome, if those Philippian believers had never sent him any of that money, of that special offering, Paul would have still been satisfied. And he would have been joyfully satisfied. Why? 
Because Paul's satisfaction and contentment was not based upon his circumstances. He didn't live his life as a thermometer. His joy was not grounded in physical and material things. Rather, his joy and his peace and his hope and his contentment and his satisfaction, all of that was bound up in his relationship with the Lord. And that recognition leads me to the first point that I want you to see on your outline. That joyful satisfaction that Paul speaks of there, well, I want you to know that it comes from being in the Lord. I cannot emphasize that point any more than I, than I am. That joyful satisfaction that was the abounding part of the peace in his life came because he was in the Lord. Listen, there are many things in this world that promise you joyful satisfaction but they'll only leave you empty and they'll only leave you craving for more, hungering for something that will never fill you up. And the reality is that if you keep looking for joyful satisfaction in anything other than the relationship that comes to you through Jesus Christ, well, you might as well start singing with Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction, though I try and I try and I try. Listen, true joy, true satisfaction only comes from being in the Lord. A relationship with Christ will steady your boat in the middle of a raging sea. Paul wanted these Philippian believers to know that although his situation was extremely difficult, remember, as I said, he was currently imprisoned. He was under house arrest as he wrote this letter. He was not now, nor had he been, discontent at any point. In fact, by what Paul says, we realize that the enjoyment of material abundance was absolutely not the basis of his contentment, nor should it be ours either. He confirms this to us by what he says in verse 11. He says that, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned that whatever state I am, to be content. That's an interesting word, content. It's a compound word in Greek. It actually brings two separate words and brings them together into one. The first is autos, which means self, and the second word is archeo, which means sufficient. And so self-sufficient really is the idea being brought forth by this word content that Paul uses there. It was a word that, that was used to, to express the idea that a person should be sufficient to himself in life that he should be able by the power of his own will to, to resist the shock of circumstances. Paul uses this word to express the fact that he was self-sufficient and he was able to resist being pulled to extremes based upon his circumstances. Now, if we peek down at verse 13, we'll see that Paul made it clear that his strength to live with such contented satisfaction, it didn't come through his own power, but it came through the power of Christ living in him. So if we think about verse 13, and we, we, we think based upon what, where Paul's joy resided, back up in verse 10, his joy resided from a relationship because he was in the Lord, and then based upon the source of his strength that he tells us down in verse 13, that that power to live the way he was living came through Christ, then we can conclude that this contentment that he speaks of here in verse 11 is not an independent sufficiency. Rather, it is a dependent sufficiency 
It's a dependent contentedness that only comes through Christ. In other words, Paul was not claiming self-sufficiency as much as he was claiming Christ's sufficiency. Notice there's something else very important that we should recognize about this contentment. Paul talks about it being content regardless of the state that he found himself in in verse 11. And then in verse 12, he expands on that thought and he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. In other words, no matter what extreme he faced, whether he found himself in the middle or between the two, he had learned to be content. Don't miss that. This is what I have identified as regardless contentment. It's kind of like that nevertheless joy. This is regardless contentment. And, and, and a regardless contentment is, is something that where you are able to remain satisfied regardless of having little or much or being hungry or filled or living in poverty or prosperity. Now, to be content is a tough thing for most of us, but one of the reasons that I think it's so tough is because by our very nature, we tend to confuse our wants with our needs. Caroline used to tell me when the kids were smaller, I don't think any of them are in here this morning. Good. I'm looking around. When my kids were smaller, she found it incredibly difficult to take them to the grocery store. Because when they were in, Charlie would might be riding in the, in the buggy or maybe the, maybe the girls were still there, but these children who were otherwise content when they got to the grocery store found themselves completely discontent when they ended up on the cookie aisle. <laughs> because they needed those chips ahoy. They needed the Oreos. Mom, we need those. They had confused their wants with their needs. They wanted those things, and suddenly they believed that they needed those things. I would just submit to you that that ain't just a kid problem. Um, I need this new such and such. I need that thing over there that I want so badly. I convinced myself that I actually need it now. Do you realize that's what advertisers do? That is their job. It is to make you discontent with what you currently have by creating within you this real desire for something else that you don't currently have, but to make you feel like you need it so badly that you will leave that which you already have, which you didn't know you were discontent with, prior to their advertising, and now you go to buy that which they're selling so that you can be content again. That's how the whole process works. And it starts from the moment that we're able to really begin to cognitively put things together. That's the process. And Paul says when our wants become confused with our needs, there will suddenly be a pressing desire to obtain more and more and be satisfied with less and less of what we have. And what I want you to know is that even though Paul had matured in his faith, he knew all too well how easily that was to affect him, which is why he used that word there that I don't want you to skip over. He had to learn to be content. 
It was not something that just immediately happened for him. Brothers and sisters, it won't immediately happen for you and for me either. So often our wants become confused with our needs. And we have to recognize that it's not natural for us to stay contented. It is a thing that has to be learned. That brings me to the second point that I want you to see this morning. And I want you to see it very clearly. Regardless, contentment is not natural, but it can be learned. I think it's important to note that Paul tells us that he had to learn this. And reality is, is is the natural thing to do is to, to be discontent. How did he learn it? Well, he learned it through experience. He learned it through living, through good times and bad times. You know, I'm a firm believer that Romans 8.28 says what it says. God works through all things in our lives to bring about His glory and our good. And that's why I think sometimes the difficult moments that we go through in our life that we really truly can't see the reason why God would allow us to go through that may find itself right here in this moment because it is through experience, it is through living, it is through going through good times and bad times that we learn that our satisfaction and our joy and our contentedness cannot rest in things and in circumstances, but in God and God alone. We probably don't like that. I don't like that. We live in a world of microwaves and fast food restaurants and fast internet. We want everything now. Waiting for it, learning, going through the process of experience is not our favorite thing to do. Um, I like like what Greg Allen has said. He said, Paul had gone through, as it were, some courses in God's school of life, and he gained some how-to knowledge along the way. What that means is learning often takes time, and it's a process. In fact, in verse 12, Paul says, Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. You see, the only way he could learn that was to experience both. There was no way that he could just immediately be dropped into the middle of it and know it. I should point out that this word learned there in verse 12 is different from the word learned that we translated back up in verse 11. This word in verse 12 carries with it the idea of being initiated into something. It's, it carries with it the idea of, of, of being something secret that has been revealed. In fact, the New American Standard, if you're reading from that this morning, probably gets it very close to right in this translation. It says, Paul says, I have learned the secret. And the point is that experiencing satisfaction in Christ and experiencing true contentment that transcends the circumstances of life, that regardless contentment that we've been talking about, well, that is something that must be learned over time in the training ground of an everyday experience of walking with Jesus. I hope that encourages you today. I don't want you to walk out of here disappointed in that. I want you to walk walk out of here encouraged because you may be evaluating your current circumstances and cataloging all the things that you don't have, but you wish that you did at the moment, and you might be thinking, you know, the truth is I'm not content, and I've been looking for satisfaction, and I've been looking for contentment, but I haven't found it yet. And in fact, you may be wondering, 
how you can figure out how to differentiate between your wants and your needs. If so, then I want you to be encouraged by what Paul says there in verse 13. Because I want to look at it again. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this passage, notes that this is one of the most frequently quoted verses in the Bible. Pretty much right behind John 3.16 and a couple of others, Philippians 4.13 bubbles to the top. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He notes that this verse has been taped on the ceiling over bench presses and weight rooms. It's been taped to the edges of bathroom mirrors to supply inspiration to face the challenges of the day, as well as numerous other places to encourage someone to attempt great feats or to withstand great pressures. Unfortunately, this verse, in many of those cases, is ripped from its context and is emptied of its real meaning that Paul desires for it to communicate to us. You see, Paul never indicated and intended that through Christ, we could become like Superman, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. He's not suggesting that through Christ, I can suddenly become six foot two and have a head full of hair. That's not what Paul's saying. Instead, within the context, what Paul is saying is that I can do all things. What he is meaning is, is that I can, I can remain steady. I have the power within me to experience great gain. You know why sometimes great gain, I'm I'm going off script for just a moment, hang with me. You know why great gain, we always want that, right? We want to abound. Do you know why that's often dangerous? Because when we are abounding, when we're flourishing in life, you know what we tend to not see? Our need for Jesus. We've got everything taken care of with all that we have over here. Why do I need Christ? On the other hand, when everything goes south and we have nothing and we're down, oftentimes it's then that we really realize that we need Jesus. But what do we think we need Jesus for? To bring us all the stuff that we had lost, that we used to have. And so we're constantly on this swing from having little to having much and we're wanting to remain over here when Jesus is calling out to say, I am all you need. And and here's the point. Paul says, I've learned through these moments of having a lot and having nothing, I've learned that Jesus is my source of strength. No matter what I face, I've learned to be content. He had learned that he could do all things. Notice once again, notice once again how clear it is. Notice that prepositional phrase. I can do all things through Christ, through him. Who strengthens me? He does not say I can do all things through education. I can do all things through money. I can do all things through friends. I can do all things through success. None of that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A regardless contentment is something that is learned and it is something that is rooted in a Christ-centered confidence. Consequently, Paul had learned that whatever came his way, His relationship with Christ would never change. And if he was brought low, he was still a man in Christ. And if he thrived, he was still a man in Christ. No matter the situation, he was in Christ. And because of that relationship, he could face anything. That leads me to the third point. 
Third point is this. Christ-centered confidence is what allows believers to face anything life throws at them. Christ-centered confidence is what allows anything, is what allows believers to face anything that life throws at them. I've quoted Warren Wiersbe a couple times already in this, in this sermon, but I want to pass on something else that he wrote that I just loved in his commentary on this passage. He said, all of nature depends on hidden resources. The great trees, for example, send their roots down deep into the earth to draw up water and minerals. The most important part of a tree is the part that you cannot see. It's the root system. And the most important part of a Christian's life is the part that only God sees. And unless we draw on the deep resources of God by faith, we will fail against the pressures of life. Paul depended on the power of Christ at work in his life. His motto was, I can through Christ, and that same motto can be ours. Listen, for those of us who've lived for any length of time, we know that highs will come, but we also know that lows will come as well. And there will be times of abundance and there will be lean times as well. And there will be days filled with happiness and there will be days filled with sorrow. And wide swings of fortune await all of us. But with Christ at the center of our lives, we can learn a contentedness that transcends our circumstances and allows us to live with joy. In fact, I would put it this way. With Christ at the center of our lives, we can learn to be thermostats and not thermometers. I couldn't help but think about that, about the fact that among this group of Philippian believers that had gathered together when this letter was returned and Epaphroditus had taken it back, either he or someone else had stood up to read it and all the congregation of the Philippian believers had gathered together to hear what Paul had written. I couldn't help but think about the fact that among that group was one man who knew this better than anybody that Paul had experienced. You see, one of the founding members of the Philippian church was that Philippian jailer that we read about and learned about at the beginning, back over in Acts chapter 16. And it was that Philippian jailer who had watched Paul and Silas after they had been arrested because Paul had delivered another member of the founding member of that church, a young slave girl, from the demonic possession that she had experienced. I'd encourage you to go back and read Acts 16. And the owners of that slave girl were so mad and so angry at what Paul had done that they had Paul and Silas, the Bible says, beaten with many stripes. Then they were taken and arrested and put into the center part of the jail. And they were placed in stocks. And those stocks were designed to create great physical uh, distress. They spread the legs out completely wide and the arms out wide and the heads would have been down in the stockade. And this would have been how they would have been rendered. Left unattended with all the bruising from all the beating. And the Bible tells us very clearly in Acts chapter 16 verse 25 that it was at midnight Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to God. That is one of the most astounding verses in all the Bible to me. 
Because I'm just going to tell you, it is not my nature when I'm mistreated and taken advantage of and falsely accused and maligned to then begin to pray and to sing praises to God. And yet that's exactly, they weren't crying, they weren't moaning, they weren't cursing. They were praying and they were singing. Brothers and sisters, let me say to you, they were not thermometers. They were thermostats. And they were affecting change on their circumstances. You want to know how I know that? Because the Bible goes on to say that as they sang, all of the prisoners, the rest of them were listening. And God was listening. Because it was about midnight that he began to shake everything in Philippi. And he shook it so much that all of the chains came loose and all of the handcuffs came off and all the stockades broke loose. And everybody in that prison were set free. In fact, they could have run out the door, but no one did. Not Paul, not Silas, and not a one of those other prisoners. Why? Because those thermostats were in there and they were praising God and those other prisoners had no idea what they were in store for. It didn't stop there because the Philippian jailer saw what happened and he imagined that everybody had run away and he's just about to take his own life when Paul calls out to him and says, don't do that, we're all here. Then the Bible says that that hardened, grizzled jailer came running into there and grabbed the light and he ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas and he says, sirs, what must I do? They were thermostats. They were not overwhelmed by their circumstances. They were instead men who affected change upon those who were around them through the power of Christ living in them. They possessed a joyful satisfaction because they had learned a regardless contentment that was rooted in a Christ-centered confidence. And listen, living a life like that will not only change you, but it will also be a life that God can use to change the lives of others as well. Let me ask you this morning. Is your complete confidence in Christ? Is He your Lord and Savior? Have you by faith trusted in Him and in Him alone to save you from your sins? Are you placing all your confidence in His atoning work on the cross and in His resurrection from the dead to be what saves you? I want you to know that that is the first step to being joyfully satisfied and content. It is to admit that you're a sinner and in need of a Savior and then to place your trust in Christ. I invite you to do that today. Believe upon Jesus and be saved. Perhaps it is a, that's a step that you've already taken. Perhaps your testimony is that your confidence in, in heaven rests in, in what Christ has done for you. Then let me ask you, is your confidence only in what God has done for you in heaven? Do you not also have confidence in what He is doing for you right here on earth? Do you have that regardless contentment that Paul describes? Or do you tend to grumble and complain? about the things not going the way you want them to? Do you find yourself restless and ill at ease over the things that you don't have? If that's the case, then like Paul, you need to learn how to trust Christ, not only for your future, but for your present as well. 
Here's the payoff for you and for me. When we learn a regardless contentment based upon a Christ-centered confidence, we will live with joyful satisfaction. We are freed, freed up to live life to its fullest, to live life with pure, unmitigated joy, which is exactly what Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. He says, I have come that you may experience joyful satisfaction. Are you satisfied? Are you living with regardless contentment? My prayer is that you will have the Christ-centered confidence that our text calls for us to have. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love and for your mercy, and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we can have that confidence. We can have that contentment. There may be those in this room this morning, though, who do not have that. They're not satisfied joyfully in you because they don't have a relationship with you. Father, I pray for them right now. I pray that that the words of this text through the power of your Holy Spirit working in their hearts will bring them to a place of conviction and and recognition that they lack that which they so desperately want and need, but that it comes through you. So Lord, remind us of that. And and Lord, use your word this morning to, to bring about that place of conviction and humility in their lives. I pray that they would come to Christ and find him there all in all. There's some of us in this room, though, the truth is, even though we've come to you, We're distracted by all the things that we decide that we need more than you. We're chasing after a lot of things that are proving themselves not to be worthy of our our efforts. And so I pray, God, that, that you would also bring conviction there as well. Repentance. Help us to turn from those things. To physically and literally in our minds and in our bodies to turn away from the things that call to us that we believe we need so badly and yet we chase after them to our peril because we ignore you. I pray that 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 would not be the case, that that we would leave this place today with a renewed commitment to follow you closely and with all of our hearts. Allow your word to transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.